0: I remember I staged at Oriel once and they had me peel uh, three cases of grapes. You know, I was young, I was like 19 or 20 or something. And I said, chef, what, why did we have to peel the grapes? Was it the, Does the skin make them bitter? And he's like, oh no, you don't have to peel them. I just wanted to see if you would. This is Taste.
1: I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, I welcome in Michael Simon, the author of Simply Simon Suppers and a longtime food television personality. I had such a good time catching up with him. We talked about the Cleveland Browns and his life, you know, teetering between New York and Cleveland and L.A. and and really his growing up around kitchens and working his way through the CIA to New York City to televisions around the world. Um, I love his new book, and I just think he is really fun to talk to you. And I love this conversation. I hope you enjoy it as well. Michael Simon, this is Taste. Welcome.
0: Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here.
1: I can't wait to talk to you about a lot of things. I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, so we can talk about, like, the Midwest in the 90s.
0: I like that. That's, but, that's good.
1: But the thing to start with is the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> How are you feeling right now about the season?
0: I mean, we're 1-0, which, as a Cleveland Browns fan, you don't really get to uh, often be undefeated. It's our first home home opener that we won, I think since 2004. What? Yeah. So to be one and O is, (laughs) (laughs) I'll take it. I feel great.
1: That's amazing. And then like Cincinnati, of course, got so much, you know, Super Bowl appearances and and really a big uh, press moment for them, but they're not doing so well. Well, I
0: don't, I think, you know, Joe Burrow, obviously, has been an incredible player since he's been drafted out of LSU. And he's an Ohio boy. Yeah. Um, But he's one in five against the Browns, believe it or not.
1: Wow. It's like something you're in his head.
0: Yeah, we got his number.
1: Now, do you have any NFL, like, customers or friends or anybody? Do you have a connection with any players?
0: Yeah, I mean, we, we, you know, obviously, having the restaurants in Cleveland, a lot of the Browns dine and have dined. Um, at our restaurants through the years. And then a lot of the, um, you know, I, I know a good amount of retired players, too. Like, yeah. I mean, Strahan and I, is, he's a very good buddy of mine. I've spent time with Earl Campbell, uh, you know, a lot of the the retired Browns. Bernie Kosar, Hanford Dixon, you know, I've known all those guys for a really long time.
1: Yeah, Kosar, I mean, we can't we can't forget his heroics.
0: No, he was incredible. I, yeah. mean, I mean, he never got us a ring, but, boy, he gave us, like, you know, that was my... Uh, end of high school, early college years, when Bernie was at the peak of his power. He
1: really was. Is he in the restaurant game? I feel Bernie Kozar has been. He he has a
0: steakhouse That's in Cleveland. It. Yeah, he has a, a, a steakhouse in Cleveland. But he loves to eat. Big diner. Loves to entertain a uh, big supporter of our of our restaurants in Cleveland.
1: Yeah, um let me ask you about New York. You live you you split time between Cleveland and, and New York. You spent some time Yeah,
0: there. I mean I'm I'm in New York more than anywhere else anymore just because yeah. of television and and things of that nature um and spend a little bit of time in LA again for for TV and stuff. Um but was born and raised in Cleveland.
1: So let me ask you about New York. What is like what's good right now restaurant-wise? Like what are you enjoying? Either on the East End or in the city, we've a lot of our listeners are coming to the city. What What are you
0: thinking? So, I mean, I lived in the city for a long time, and I, I I'm in love with Chouquette right now. Yeah, I mean, I think she's doing some of the most interesting food in the city. Um, the restaurant is vibrant and exciting, yeah. and just everything about it. Um, I, I just I just love that restaurant. I, there's just something magic about that restaurant.
1: Yeah, the way the service is uh, is on point, and just like the space is really dreamy. What about like a classic near spot? Like like classic, classic. Well, restaurant?
0: you know what's not like a classic classic, but feels classic classic to me is Don Angie is another mm-hmm. one, and they're actually the um, Angie's actually a Clevelander, so a little shout out to Angie. But yeah. uh, I, it feels like a restaurant like you feel when you walk into Don Angie that like you could like sit next to Sinatra, which I kind of <laughs> love about that place. Um, old school, old school, gosh, woof, woof.
1: I mean, it could be, it could be pie. It could be a deli. It could, Oh, be... uh, you know what?
0: I, I, I'm, I'm in this, I was in the city for the night and I'm staying at the Ludlow on the lower East side. I mean, Katz's deli, it, it doesn't yeah. get any better than Katz's deli. I, I like it. It is the best pastrami sandwich in the world. Bar none. I don't want to hear about some random one you had in Idaho. Like, I mean, it's, it's insane.
1: I mean, that so agree, the the firmest take you're ever going to have is it is the best pastrami in the world. And if you order corned beef, like, what the fuck? Like,
0: what are you doing? Like, I had, like, Cleveland's known for corned beef. So uh, Katie Pickett, who was my corner director for, like, 15 <laughs> years, she came in from Cleveland when she first came to New York. She goes, I don't, I don't get it. I, like, it, it wasn't as good as you made it out to be. I go, the pastrami sandwich wasn't as good as I made it out to be. She goes, no, I got corned beef. I'm like, no. You went to Katz's and you didn't get pastrami? No, I got corned beef. I think Sliman's in Cleveland is better. I'm like, yes, Sliman's corned beef in Cleveland is better than Katz's, but you go to Katz's to get the pastrami sandwich, period. Oh, my God.
1: It's like ordering a hot dog at Katz's. Yeah. It's like, what are you doing,
0: man? Yeah, I mean, it's a delicious hot dog, but like— Maybe you get a hot dog as a starter, and then you have your pastrami sandwich.
1: Fair. I like that move. Okay, so let's g- – talking about pizza, you worked at a restaurant called g- uh, Geppetto's Pizza and Ribs. <laughs> high school. In high school. So, I mean, what what can, what can a young cook or someone early in food learn from working at a pizza and ribs
0: joint? Well, you know, it's funny. Back then, um, you know, that was a time – I don't know how much that world has changed, but, like, I mean, we made the dough every day. We made the sauces every day. Um, So, you you know, you learn how to play with yeast. You learn about things rising or not rising (laughs) or, um, you know, how long you need to let a dough ferment before it is at its peak. Um, you know, same with the like. We weren't smoking ribs back then, you know. Um, it was like oven style. Yeah, it was oven style. Liquid smoke? No, no liquid smoke. Um, but they made a really great sauce, and they finished them on a grill. Like they were finished on a charcoal grill, um, or a wood fired grill. But they were oven cooked. But you know, you learn about tenderness, overcooking, undercooking. Um, you know, not taking a rib too far. Uh, you know, so just some good basic skills and knife skills. Yeah, I'm sure
1: you were, like, d- doing a lot of onions then. Sure a lot you- of onions, a yeah.
0: lot, of, lot of those kind of things, just basic knife skills, which yeah. I think are important, you know.
1: Now, let's talk about pizza styles, uh, a bit of a micro theme here on the show. Now, let me ask you, you know, we've got Frico happening on Detroit. We've got deep dish happening in Chicago or Tavern in Chicago. Does,
0: does Cleveland have a pizza style
1: in your assessment?
0: It, it does. Uh, you know, I don't— I mean. Clevelanders are going to be mad at me when I say (laughs) it. I don't love Cleveland-style pizza. Cleveland-style pizza is – it's basically a a relatively sweet-sauced pizza um, that's baked in a pan of, I would say, medium thickness Mm. and lots of toppings. You know, the Mm – now, it is – the independent places are much better than this. But the example that I would use for chains that, like, is a Cleveland-style pizza is like a Pizza Hut-style pizza in denseness of crust and yep. thickness of crust with that slightly sweet sauce. Um, there is a place in Cleveland called Dracy's, which is old-school Cleveland um, pizza that I think makes a great Cleveland-style pizza. The sauce isn't too sweet. The dough is always very crisp. Um, and they hand-cut their pepperoni, which mm. I respect for.
1: Respect that. So it's like a mid-pan, but we're talking about mid-pan, right? Yeah, mid-pan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, too much
0: topping can be a problem. Too, yeah, yeah, I do not like, like, you know, meat lovers, veg lovers, cheese lovers. I mean, look, at the end of the <laughs> day, no one could ever convince me different that a New York slice of pizza is the best pizza on earth. A New York slice of cheese. I don't even want pepperoni on it. I don't need anything on it. A slice of a New York cheese pizza from, you know, if you're going old school Joe's, mm-hmm. if you're going new school Scars. Yeah. Um, or even like a Pizzeria Fini, Um you're not gonna beat it.
1: Not gonna beat it. Nothing to beat there. I agree with you, fully. I think that we can definitely get into like regional stuff, but yeah, I think and ta- I love a grandma, a great grandma. Great grandma you know, is great. Tavern in Chicago is pretty good too. Yeah. Thin
0: crust, yeah. Thin thin crust. You know, yeah. The the I don't the the casserole pizza in Chicago. I don't. Yeah, need, we, but we don't the, even talk about but that. But the tavern pizza is
1: great. <laughs> Thank you, Michael, for bringing up the casserole point. We don't. We just don't talk about that shit. Yeah, it's, it's just, not pizza. It's a casserole. I love it. Thanks, buddy. It's a wishing well. I appreciate. So you graduated from the CIA in 1990. What was your time like in Hyde Park? You know, were you just like in the books working? Did you get to have some fun? What's tell me? Take us back to that era.
0: I was working. I mean, I was, uh, I was. Wor- you know, back then the the average age of the the kids at culinary school was a bit older than it is now. Most people were four, five, six, seven, eight years out of high school, mm-hmm. um, with a good amount of experience. So I felt like I had a lot of catching up to do. Um, I had worked at a couple restaurants before I went there. Okay, cool. So you had some really, like, experience and you knew. Yeah. I mean, like, I worked at Geppetto's for basic skills, and then I worked at a restaurant in Cleveland called Sammy's, which was a fine dining restaurant um, that gave me some, you know, good basic skills, good knife skills, how to make stock, like, good Mm -hmm. basic chops. Um, And then I, you know, would often go on. To the city and try to get stages and stuff on the weekend when i could that's cool um so yeah i was working do you remember any of those stages that
1: you had to pop into the city and just like drop in and like a chef we might know or forget?
0: yeah i mean like I, I i staged at an american place um yep. you know larry forgione which was incredible um you know spent a little bit time here and there with waxman when i was in my youth um staged at jams richard Krauss. um who uh, had the Melrose you know Richard was also the creator of uh, Chinois in Maine for Wolfgang um, you know he was the original like chef de cuisine and developed that Chinois concept for Wolf um, so yeah just did stages where I could get them in the oh river cafe oh in Brooklyn yeah yeah. Um, you know and you like back then you'd get a stage you could you know work a weekend work two weekends you didn't get paid but you learned a lot and got to see a lot
1: yeah, that's cool. That 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 like feeder from Hyde Park down to the city. It's a short like train ride and you yeah. can you can do this do the stage. Mm-hmm. I wanna step we can talk about your restaurant career in Cleveland, but I actually want to stay in New York um, and talk about Perea.
0: Okay. So um, yeah, I was a consulting chef at a, a restaurant called Perea in um, in New York, right next to Gramercy Tavern. Yeah. Um It was a a Greek restaurant. We had just opened Lolita up in Cleveland, um, which was a predominantly Greek menu, a little bit of Mediterranean influence also. Um, And it it was before we had reopened Lola um, in downtown Cleveland. And a couple Greek gentlemen were getting ready to open a restaurant up in New York, a Greek restaurant. And they had eaten at Lolita and... Wanted to see if I had interest in in being the consulting chef for them in the city. And at the time, to be honest, we were we were very close to filing for bankruptcy. We were about wow. a year behind on opening Lola. We had people moving from all over the country to uh to work at the new Lola that we were paying them all out of this little 40-seat restaurant, Lolita at. And we were, we were fighting. We were struggling. It was, you know, we were self-funded. We didn't have investors and mm-hmm. all this magic money. Um, it was our own money. And we were about out of money. So I took the gig. Um, and Jonathan Sawyer, who was, worked for me at Lolita yeah. and was one of the— I, I had two young chefs there, Jonathan Sawyer and Jonathan Seaholzer, that I made co-chefs. Um, so I moved Jonathan Sawyer— to New York to run Perea, and I left Jonathan Seaholzer in Cleveland to run Lolita. Um, and the, the restaurant did very good. It was they. It
1: wanted, was amazing. I bring it up because I don't want it to be lost for time because I think it was a really good restaurant. Yeah, I, I mean I they wanted they there. wanted
0: to be a casual restaurant. It was yeah. You know, I think it, it was the first. was one of the first restaurants in the city, a Greek restaurant, to get two stars exactly. uh, from Bruni, it, like. I feel it was right on the edge of th- it was too casual to be a three-star but mm-hmm. um but i I was really proud of the food we did there yeah. it was it was fun I had a really good time doing that restaurant do I, I want to do a Greek restaurant again
1: yeah because Greek Sicilian is your background yeah. and you you, you cook those styles in your books often and uh, on television um wh- what do you recall about New York in the early 2000s like working in the restaurant scene was there any like de- like definitive style or tone that was happening then no I mean it was you know fortunately i
0: I've, i had I had some really good success prior to that like I you know I'd won food and wine I uh Lola was named one of the the, the top 50 restaurants in Bone app you know so I knew a lot of chefs in in New York and you know Flay and and Wax and just a, a lot of, so I had a good support system yeah, um, yeah which was huge you know I didn't have to I was able to find good cooks I was able to you know I knew all the purveyors so it was um It was about as easy, I feel, as a transition could be doing a restaurant in New York City.
1: Now, when did the TV stuff, like, really pick up? Like, was it during this era when you were in New York and—
0: Well, it initially—like, my first show on the Food Network was in 1998. It was right after I won Food & Wine Best New called The Melting Pot Mm -hmm. um, that I did with uh, Wayne Harley Brackman, who was Bobby's pastry chef. Um, And then Aron Sanchez was also on that show. Like, we each did a day, so— Wayne and I did a day, Aron Sanchez did a day, Padma did a day, Rocco de Spirito did a day. And then like who else was with us? This those is called people? Melting Pot. Melting Pot. I got to I got to get that. Oh my god. Is it on school. streamings? I you could probably find it. <laughs> I mean so like um, Rocco and Michelle Bernstein, yeah. I think we or no, Rocco and Cat Cora were together for a day, Michelle Bernstein and somebody. I can't mm. remember everybody now. Yeah, But, I mean, it was loaded, if you think about it. Padma. I mean, yeah. like, a lot of culinary talent came out of that, or TV talent came yeah. out of that show. Um, and then I did that for two and a half years. And, I mean, back then, like, it, this was before Rachel Ray. I mean, yeah. it was before 30-Minute Meals. Um, Emerald Live was just starting to pop. Um, you know, Bob. The
1: celebrity chef was becoming a thing. It was, it was becoming crystallizing a thing.
0: Yeah. But it wasn't there yet. And, like, you know... It was very hard for me to come to New York to do the shows because we had this tiny restaurant. It was me and two guys in the kitchen, like two cooks. So it would really put a strain on the restaurant when I had to come film. Hmm. And, you know, I remember talking to Bobby about, I am like, I don't think I'm going to do this. And it's just not, you know, the joke was, you know, melting pot. We're big in prisons and nursing homes. Like, who knows? <laughs> like my, if my mom didn't watch the show, the ratings dropped by half. Like it yeah. just wasn't, yeah. I didn't understand it. So. I stopped doing food Network, uh, uh, but I would still do specials with them like um so I was still involved in the food network family and then in I can't remember the exact year, but uh you know Iron Chef started, and I, you know I became an iron chef, and that's when it really yeah really started going crazy, and
1: that's when like the recognizability on the street happened, and you start doing the endorsements and
0: yeah, and then, then the two and you know all all those things started. yeah, right
1: on that of course. But you like it, right?
0: You like doing television? No, I do. You know, like, I always tell people, you know, I'm fortunate because I still get to spend time in in restaurants. Yeah. But ultimately, my favorite thing about working in restaurants is teaching young cooks. Like, that's always been my favorite thing. I love to teach. And so to me, TV is just an extension of what I love to do in the restaurants. It's in, but instead of teaching... 15 Young Cooks How to Cook, you're teaching several million people how to cook. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the light switch really went on for me, I think, the most at the Chew when, you know, we did seven seasons, um, you know, 1,500 episodes of television, and you realized how much you were affecting how people cooked for their families. Yeah, Like people would say... Oh my God, you made that recipe. Like I did the, the, the book five and five, five ingredients, uh, five minutes, five bucks, which was based on a segment that I developed for the chew. And so many people at that time came up to me and like, were like, you know, we've been feeding our kids fast food and, and, and easy bake meals and all this kind of stuff. And and you can showed us that we could get a meal on the table for them at a, at a, reasonable price in a reasonable amount of time. And it's, it's really changed how we cook for our families. And I was like, man, that's, that's awesome. Like that's, that's something that I never take for granted. You know, I just don't take it for granted. And I really enjoy that. It's like, it's like everything I do on Food Network, I really enjoy. I like doing the competition shows. Obviously Iron Chef, I love doing, I love competing. I, I love hosting shows. But like when I get to do Simon's dinners mm-hmm. in the backyard with Liz, and we're just cooking a meal, to me that's that's as good as it gets it's for me.
1: Got to be gratifying. And th- Michael, thank you for sharing that. It's really cool that you you can kind of get outside of the competition and actually talk about democratizing food, getting people to cook more affordably, because that's how people really do cook, and yeah. and really they need we we need help out there.
0: Well, yeah, and sometimes I watch a cooking show, and I'm just like, dude, <laughs> what the, what are you doing? Like. Like edible flowers. Yeah, I mean, like, look, like if you're cooking for chefs, that's great. And and it's hard as a chef to like not wanting to impress your peers, so to speak. But like you're this isn't what the shows are about. You're trying to show America. You're trying to show people how to make great food from scratch. That is not only delicious, but has some nutritional value on the table for their family or themselves or their friends um like i i don't care that you could you know sear foie gras with hmm. quince paste and brioche croutons i mean it's delicious and i would eat the shit out of it but like yeah know what you're supposed to be doing here so um when when i kind of realized that i it was a light bulb moment for me and you know fortunately i'm as uh, you know my son, Kyle, likes to say, goes, you truly do not give a shit what people think about you. I'm like, nope, never have. And I, I feel like I'm confident in enough in myself as a chef Then, when people come to my restaurants, they get the, you know, the full Simon, the Iron Chef yeah. Simon, whatever you want to call it. But when they're, when I'm on TV, I'm trying to teach people how to cook. Um, and it's very similar when I when I go about writing a cookbook. It's like, I don't need... To write a book to prove to people that I could cook. I've proven to people that I could cook for yeah. a very long time. I don't I don't need a, oh, look how great I am, right. this cookbook. It comes I'm, from a place of,
1: like, like uh, lacking confidence when you have to, like, show off a certain techniques, right? Right, you know. Let me ask you, is there an ingredient or a process that you feel is, like, super maligned and super made fun of in, like, snobby food circles that you just embrace fully that you're, like, I want to cook, I want to, like, tell everyone to make this thing with that because it's so good but we snark it because we mean food media
0: well i think one that has now food media is starting to accept it um but like anybody who doesn't think that american cheese isn't the best cheese to put on a hamburger is so full of shit that i can't even tell you like get all that fancy ash cheese off my hamburger that there's a proper cheese that goes on a burger it is typically orange. It melts in a very fast, quick manner that coats your burger, and it is salty and delicious. And you know, it's a single cheese, typically wrapped in a plastic wrap. <laughs> Anybody who doesn't think that's the best cheese is is lying. Yeah. They're just flat out lying to themselves. So I think that's probably the greatest example of it. Um, what else? Like, I, <laughs> I remember. <laughs> And I do it sometimes, too. I'm not going to lie, like, even when I'm at home. And, like, look, I'm very, you know, I cook at home very farm-to-table. Like, I just do. I, You know, I love – not, like, because I'm trying to be a snooty You're a chef. You think that way. Yeah, I love going to the farmer's market and buying things. And it just – it brings me great pleasure. Um, But I remember I was cooking with my grandfather once, and he was making mac and cheese. And I'm like, God, yours is so much creamier than mine. Why – is yours so... I don't understand. I'm, am I an idiot? Like, I could make a perfect bachamel. I could make a perfect Mornay. I could make... Why, Pap, I, w- I want to watch you make mac and cheese. So he, like, goes and he, like, makes the bachamel and puts in the milk and, um, you know, he puts in some cheddar and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, are you ready? I go, yeah. He goes, there's two magic cheeses I put in this that makes it perfect every time. I'm like, okay. He takes, like, a big scoop of cream cheese and throws it in. And then... Takes a big chunk of Velveeta. Oh, right from the, the block the, from the block that he had yeah. stashed in his fridge and whisked it in, and I'm like, damn, it's perfection. It's like it's like so good, perfection. and it's like, yeah. look, I'm not saying that that whatever. I don't even know if it's cheese. I it could not it very it, well. It
1: has elements of cheese. It's probably like in a lower percentage. Than, lower percentage than fifty. Of <laughs> cheese. Yeah. But But whatever.
0: But damn, if it doesn't make the best cheese sauce for mac and cheese, anybody that says it doesn't, I think, not being super honest with themselves.
1: Have you put yolk, egg yolks, in mac and cheese? You ever tried that? I have. I don't love it. You don't love it. I love it. I feel that's like a real like either a divide: yolks or no yolks. Yeah,
0: yolks or no yolks. I mean, like you know, my my um, Liz's mom is from Dalton, Georgia, so I've gotten definitely like. Incredible southern cooking tips over the years mm-hmm. from her, and she does put eggs in hers, and she bakes her mac and cheese always, never stovetop, yep, yep, yep. and it's incredibly delicious. But it is like I feel like when you make a mac and cheese in that style, it has to almost be for a party that's all eaten at once. Like yep. it, once it sets, it just whoosh, yeah. you know like you got to serve it on the menu. It's like yeah. a real
1: chefy kind of thing, right? Hundred percent. Got to do it. Transitioning. I want to talk about the bear. Michael oh. is it triggering.
0: No, I, well, season one was a little triggering. Okay, good. Um, You're
1: being honest. I appreciate.
0: Yeah, that. season one was a little triggering. Season two, more made uh, tr- uh, triggering, but not in a. Yeah. It, it made me think more. Like like, when I saw, um, cousin having to polish all the silverware for spoons, like, spoons like for whatever three, four, five days. Um, it reminded me of like you know when I was taking jobs as restaurants as, as a young cook and it was like there's a case of leeks I'm like okay <laughs> and you clean them and they're like there's another case of leeks there's another case of leeks there's another case of leeks there's another I'm like holy shit you know and like for two weeks all you did was cut leeks um, or uh, <laughs> I remember I staged at Oriel once and they had me peel a, uh, three cases of grapes peel three cases peel, of grapes. grapes wow and then they. He blanched them. The chef de cuisine blanched them in olive oil and then pureed them and passed them through a chinois. And I said, what? You know, I was young. I was like 19 or 20 or something. And I said, chef, wh- why did we have to peel the grapes? Was it the, the, does the skin make them bitter? And he's like, oh, no, you don't have to peel them. I just wanted to see if you would. You Old know? school. Old school. Is it, that Grey Coons? Was that Ariel? It wasn't. No. Uh, it was Charlie Palmer Desert was the chef. Palmer. But this was the chef de cuisine whose name is yeah. escaping me right now. I'll think of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, and at the time I was salty as hell, but <laughs> but it but I did learn so much in those like those brief stages. And um it taught me discipline, you know, it taught me a lot of discipline. It, it taught me that like sometimes you, you have to, you know, sometimes you do have to run through a wall to get to the other side of it. Um, and and, you know, the, the, the kitchen business is tough. I mean, and I think that's one thing that the bearer has done a very good job of showing that, um, you know, it is TV and, and it's a little dramatized, but, but this is a very difficult business, you know, that, um, is high stress you know, I, I don't think you could talk to anybody in the restaurant business that doesn't have nightly dreams about the restaurant business. Hmm. You know, it, it's like, you know, Liz is a, a Psalm and always ran the front of the house and I ran the back. And I mean, w- it was hilarious. We, you know, we'd wake up in the morning and she's like, like, she'd be like, oh my God, I, all night I dreamed about, we I couldn't turn table six, you know? And I'm like, all night I dreamt about like you know I couldn't I couldn't clear the board or I lost it just I stress lost it to, Yeah, always. Always. And I think you just have them forever. I still have them. Yeah. I still have. Is more stressful than doing television working uh, working the line? Yeah, different muscle. Different Like muscle, I mean right. like I'm equally as tired uh but it's a different muscle. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I want to talk about uh, Simply Simon Suppers, your new book. And I just want to get a sense of you've, you've written several books with us here at Clarkson Potter. But let's get a sense about this book and what do you want your readers to take away from it?
0: I want them to know that the way that I was raised and the way that I continue to live is, you know, I was raised that every Sunday. My mom cooked and people came over for dinner. Six, eight, 10, 12, 14, depending. And it was a Sunday thing. hmm But it was always basically the same dinner. It was, you know, cavatel, Sunday sauce, gravy, whatever you want to call it. We call it sauce. Uh, The same salad, um, garlic bread with cheese, um, you know, Italian and Greek cookies. And Mm. and people came over. What's the salad? Um, The salad was uh, romaine, cucumbers, tomato, feta cheese, black olives, and oregano vinaigrette. Yeah.
1: Delicious. So, I mean, like, truly a perfect salad. I mean,
0: it's, 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 you got to have salt. Salad as you oh, can, my God. Yeah, like herbs and salt. Briny salt and herbs. Yeah, yeah, totally. And usually like a bunch of fresh dill in there, too. Um, so we still do it now. We, it's not always Sunday, but we always have a dinner during the week for friends and family. Um, and it could be, again, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 20. So the, the basis of the book is 52 meals. For the entire year, including holidays. And if you were to come to my house for 52 straight weeks, once a week for dinner, you would eat one of the items that are in this book or one of the menus that are in this book. Mm. We grouped it into menus. You could cherry pick, yeah. Cherry pick as you see fit. But these are the ones that we did. Like we actually made the dinner, had friends over, ate. This is going in the book. I love that. Had the dinner that was your process had friends over eight this is going in the book you know um and then you know all the holidays how we like to do holidays so um it it, this out of all the books I've done this is the biggest it's about 180 recipes um and but I think this is the book that is if you really want to see an inside look on how myself and Liz and my family look at life through food this book is the greatest example. Of that. Yeah.
1: And menu planning is so difficult for many. I mean, me included. Like it's we can't put things together naturally. Right. So to have like menu planning built in is cool.
0: Yeah. And, and I love the holiday section. I love, yeah. you know, I love that you could go, oh, Thanksgiving. Here we go. I'm going to make Simon's menu, you know, like. um, And we broke it out through like the times of the year. So there's recipes for when it's hot out, you know, little chill out colder out, you know, so you could go through it like that too. And, and people are going to develop their favorites. I mean, I'm funny in that sense. I love cooking a different menu theme Mm -hmm. every week. Um, But, you know, certainly people could find their favorites and and go more of the style that like my mom went. Like on Sunday, I make this on, like my mom was an incredible cook, but like, the funny thing is, it's like, oh, Wednesday was lasagna. Yeah. You know, Sunday was sauce. Uh, Thursday was pasticcio. Friday was some kind of fish. You know, I always knew what it was going to be. That's great.
1: I can't uh, let this pass. We share a friend and photographer, Ed Anderson, Ed shot my book, Food IQ. You've worked with him on a lot of books. Let's just shout Ed out. Let's just
0: do it. Ed's the greatest. I mean, he's done, I think it's my last four, maybe five books. Yeah. Comes, hangs out with us at the house. He's so chill. Yeah. But just does beautiful, beautiful work. I am I'm blessed. so I Doug has done seven out of my eight books as my co-author. Mm-hmm. Ed has done four out of my four or five of my last books with photography. Susan Spungen, who is the greatest food style to ever put two hands on food. there's no one that could style. She food sat in like
1: that her. chair. We had her on like a month ago on the podcast. I love talking to
0: Susan I mean she she has styled most of my cookbooks. She's great. Um, she's incredible, you know? Um, so like I have, I've worked hard to like work on assembling a good team with, with Potter. Um, and, and we just keep, keep the same team. Cause I think we make good books.
1: You really do. And, and I'm going to link to the show notes, pick that book up, check out Michael's work. Let's close on this is taste. We ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, fast and furious taste check. Are you ready?
0: i was born ready.
1: You're born ready. The best morning pastry with coffee.
0: The best morning pastry with coffee. Oh gosh. Um the the Greek cookies, kululakiya. The best dessert, hands down. Best dessert, hands down. A uh, coconut cake. The best bread. Best bread is a, a Italian seeded semolina loaf. Man, Italian bread does not get enough credit. It's so good. It's good, man. It's so
2: good.
1: Sandwiches, you have a garlic bread. I agree.
0: I love all the fancy breads too, but, man, a, a seeded semolina loaf, come on.
1: Yeah, from a nice local Italian bakery. The I love best. that. Yeah. The most underrated piece of kitchen equipment.
0: Most underrated. Uh, food mill.
1: The most overrated piece of kitchen equipment.
0: <laughs> Sous vide machine.
1: Yeah. We can just throw those away.
0: Like it's So stupid. Agree. Just because, like, you know what? It's not worth the time for a home cook. No, the, the reason people use it in restaurants, and they should, I don't use it, in, we never use it in our restaurants, because no. it, it doesn't teach people how to cook, is to protect their cooks from, in France they used to use it when the Americans would come over, they'd go, put this in the bag, stick in the water so you don't <laughs> screw it up. But I, I don't know, learn how to cook.
1: <laughs> Love that. Your favorite cookbook of all time? Oh, God. Prune. Yeah. B- writing recipes. Brilliant. Do you hang out with her? I do. Gabriel.
0: Yeah. Or Zuni, Pruner Zuni. Those are my two favorites.
1: Zuni has been mentioned on this show. This is probably the fifth time. Yeah. Why do you like that book so much?
0: Another great storyteller, beautiful recipes, miss her dearly. Yeah. And I love that restaurant. Yep. A few more.
1: Favorite recent cookbook discovery?
0: I mean, it's this is very recent, but I've really enjoyed looking through Alex Guanticelli's new book. Yeah. It's really good. You know, it's it's you know I I have known her daughter since she was born, basically. So those two doing a book together is really fun to me, and I've okay. I've I've enjoyed looking through That's it. Cool.
1: Couple more. Your favorite vegetable?
0: Favorite vegetable would have to be, <sighs> kohlrabi.
1: Your favorite sandwich?
0: Favorite sandwich? Oh, a classic New York uh, egg and cheese on a on a roll.
1: Yeah. When when I moved out here, I'd never had that. It's truly an East Coast. It is. I'm like, how did the rest of the country not get this memo? (laughs) Love it so much, Michael Simon. Thank you so much for joining This Is Taste. Eric Rinkle, thank you for joining This Is Taste. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I mean, your show is like the talk of our podcast, of our industry, and a big part of why the show is so important to us is that you get the details right. And a big part of those details are the is the set and and the cookbooks that we see on the show and how the kitchen looks and how the front of house looks. And you, as a set decorator on the Bear, are responsible uh, for this task along with your team. So I really wanted to have you on. I really appreciate you being here.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to talk about it. You know, it's it was. It's a unicorn experience. It was the best thing I've ever worked on. You know, sometimes I think, I don't know if I'll ever work on something that is as great of an experience, you know, just well-rounded.
1: So let's get into exactly how do you, what is a set decorator? What are you responsible for? Do you get the scripts well ahead of time? And what's the lead time like? And, and just take us through what you're actually doing to get these, you know, these sets ready.
2: So it it varies project to project Uh, on this show, which is kind of rare, is uh, we got all the scripts up front, uh, all 10 episodes, which is great. Uh, You know, I work for the production designer uh, and Marie Vesky is our production designer and she works closely with Chris Storer and Andrew, our cinematographer, and they come up with a design and idea lighting for all of our sets, how it's going to look, you know, script by script. And she portrays to me what the design is, what they want it to look like. And then I work closely with my team. I have a buyer, Kathy, my coordinator, Brandy, and my lead Jeff and his crew. And we, you know, we find everything that's needed. We source it, we install it. And we work closely with uh, this season. We work closely with uh, Coco, who I know has been on the show, and Maddie Matheson. And we came up with a fully functional restaurant, you know, down to uh, water was running. They were actually cooking on the set. uh, So it's about bringing Chris's world to life and making it, uh, you know, the best it can be.
1: Yeah. I mean, really it's it's clear that the actors are given these tools when they're filming and that we're not doing like CGI or anything, you know, too trickery. We're actually seeing like fire lit up and and we're we're actually getting a sense that cooking is happening with these characters and it's coming to life. What's the biggest challenge with cooking and or sorry, with filming with with real life fire?
2: Uh, I mean, there's no real challenge with cooking with live fire. I mean, There's uh, Maggie, who is our special effects coordinator, and she, uh, I mean, off. So to understand it, this restaurant is built in the middle of a studio. So it's just like a big warehouse in the middle is this interior of the restaurant. And so she ran gas lines. And I mean, we have a fire marshal uh, on whenever we're doing live fire, but we're always... Making sure it's safe—that's the main priority. I mean, the only thing we didn't have running is a, a deep fryer because that is probably one of the scariest things in a kitchen,
1: mm-hmm.
2: from yeah. what a lot of people have told me. And we don't have an actual working Ansel system, so we always have people around that are ready to put out fires. But we always practice uh, being safe. And if an actor is uncomfortable with someone something, I know they, they try and help them and work through it. Uh, I mean, but there's no hand doubles in the show. I mean, it's all the cast actually cooking, learning. From what I understand, a lot of them in the off season staged at yeah. actual restaurants.
1: Yeah, yeah. I feel like I've I've heard in talking to Coco a bit uh, and I O about it. It seems like there was a lot of a lot of training, a lot of method happening with the actors. Take us to a se- a set that maybe we might as a viewer might not realize how much work went into it. Like what was one of the more difficult or challenging or involved sets that you built? Um, and to be clear, season one and season two. Oh, I
2: mean, season one, uh, I mean that whole rest, I mean, besides the pilot, uh, that whole restaurant was built the interior. And I, I don't know if a lot of people know that, but, uh, we built first season, a fully functional restaurant, uh, and, A lot went into that because we bought a lot of used equipment so a lot of it had to get serviced and uh, redone this season we got a lot of new equipment uh and sometimes it was a little uh outside of some of the people that we work with purview of how to install this equipment so there was uh some difficulties with that like i remember there's a day we were trying to use the gelato machine we uh got but we had all the uh amperage and electrical messed up on it oh. or season 1 we uh I had set dressers who worked for me they dressed the sets uh installing a a functioning soda machine which is really messy and no one had ever done it before but
1: uh <laughs> wow what a challenge
2: yeah so syrup everywhere really gross guys were sticky all the time running water lines to it uh watching uh like dad youtube videos wait so
1: wait back to the soda machine so yeah for, uh, first like what is this like coke or pepsi or are you just doing whatever and what like what's the point of having a working soda machine and having to actually install real soda
2: uh we did it because we always w- wanted the actors to feel like the sp- space was real so okay. you know if if richie or someone in front of house is filling up soda we want the actual machine to be functioning. I don't know if it ever, I don't think we ever saw it working, but it was always an option. I, <laughs> we always try to give them the world. Yeah. You know, I want everyone to have the tools I need. Even that there's an ATM machine in the front of the house, which we I hooked up to internet, and it could have been a functioning ATM machine if we wanted it to.
1: There's a real obsessiveness right here in, in the best possible way, because you are serving the actors and the producers and the directors, um, and you're just you're you're putting all this effort into making a real universe. I, I respect the hell out of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I just want them to have everything they need to make the best pro- possible product. And uh, you know, in storytelling, I don't want them to come in and be like, "Why is this thing not working?" It would be great, you know, I'd love this action, and it's great to give them everything they need. Or you know, try to think outside the box of what could they ask for, you know, offer options if something's not working. So and that's the best part of this show is uh, it is sort of a collaboration. There's never a time when uh, Chris's door was shut to me. You know, if I had an idea or I wanted to talk to Chris about something, he was always open uh, and loved to look at things and hash it out. You know what? One of the
1: sets that really like sticks with me is in season one. It's Carmi's office the in the restaurant. Like to me, and I've, I've written books with chefs and spent a lot of time in restaurants and, and in those offices, like working on books with them. And, and it, it's so accurate just to see obviously the mess, a lot of analog like, res, like receipts and, and invoices on paper. Um, but also like, you know, empty bottles of alcohol, like samples. Like, let me like, take me take us through the, the the creation of that office space.
2: Yeah. So that office space, I th- mostly it was like remnants of his brother, Mikey, you know, yeah. and it's uh, I mean, it's a mess. He He never cleaned it, you know, kind of walking into this huge mess. And I mean, I have childhood memories of my my father owned a pizza place in New York city when I was a kid and going down to the basement to the office and it being one of the scariest places (laughs) I think I can remember of going, you know, dark, messy. Uh, I mean, this isn't as dark, but it's, it's a mess. It's chaos. And part of that is, you know, sugar coming into it and not being able to find the files she needs. And we even went as far as, uh, if that breaker box was ever opened, we installed fake breakers that were wired poorly, taped badly. All the conduit runs actually have cable running through them uh, just in the off chance when they're remodeling or something that someone pulls it out. So it it was, uh, we tried to fill everything in case anyone opened something and everything was pretty intentional.
1: That's amazing. And so you're saying like when they are shooting scenes, you know, the directors would allow the cast to improvise movements once in a while. So you wanted to give them the opportunity or the director to make that decision to open the breaker box and actually have something like look like a shot.
2: Yeah, we I never we never want. And I think this might be the industry across the board is anytime we do a kitchen or any sort of. Place with cabinets and drawers. We always want to fill those drawers because there is the off chance that the actor is like, "Oh, I want to open this drawer," and then they open it and there's nothing in
1: it, <laughs> right? You know?
2: Yeah, it becomes like the middle school production of Our Town, where like you're opening yeah. drawers
1: and it's not, you know, nothing's there. Yeah, it's 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 just respect to to what you you all put into the show. And you know, one of the biggest uh, takeaways from many of us in in food and we we publish books here is is the cookbooks, and we. I really wanted to talk to you about, you know, the cookbooks featured on the show in both seasons. You know, they're in Carmi's um apartment. They're in the in the office, they're in Sydney's apartment. So when you were thinking about the cookbooks that you were gonna feature on the show, first off, how did you pick them? And second off, where did you buy them from?
2: So season one, uh I kind of, you know, we I found online a lot of Blogs, a lot of uh, articles written by chefs uh, saying books that inspired them, uh, books they recommend. Uh, I worked closely with Chris, and he had a little list. Uh, and season one, we kind of just generated these books that we thought he would have so ones that are kind of flexes at times, you know, something from a collector's standpoint, ones that could have been friends of his, uh, and even ones that we were like, well, he probably wouldn't have bought this, but someone was like, hey, uh, I know you like to cook. Here's a cookbook, you know, kind of a gift. So it, we tried to do a wide array. Oh, and then season two, we tried to build on that. I mean, I, I read articles by people talking about the cookbooks from season one and things they wish they saw. And I then went out and bought those things that they wish they saw. Uh, And then Coco... And I would we would FaceTime. She'd be in LA. I'd be in Chicago prepping. And she would go to a rare bookstore and you know, she'd show me some books that she thought they'd have and we'd we get them. I dealt with uh now serving in LA. Yeah. Uh in Chicago we have uh it's not small, but it's a it's a used bookstore called Myopic, where we got a lot of uh like family cookbooks. Uh so maybe something weird or more local to chicago so uh and then i i purchased a lot of books off eight books ones that uh, uh weren't able to get from those three stores uh yeah. so yeah, a lot of and, rare books was,
1: there a lot of rare books yeah Abe. and you know i loved seeing the last course uh claudia fleming's book out serious eater from ed levine franklin barbecue momofuku milk bar there's a josh mm-hmm. nyland book in there it really had great taste and of course it was you and Chris and Coco Maddie all the all the guys coming together
2: yeah yeah it was it's the, it's just a big collaboration and it, it, at times it it feels like you're hanging out with your friends all day and you can talk to them about anything about the creative process and you know i would go up to chris I'm like what do you want for this you know is there anything you want even the actors i would they're so approachable and so nice. I would say, Hey, is there something you would like in your station that would make mm-hmm. you feel comfortable, you know, make you feel more at home? So, yeah.
1: Well, Ken Conception from, uh, from now serving in LA, he, said, he noted in an article. He's surprised he didn't see Harold McGee's on food or the Sander Cats, the art of fermentation, though I thought I saw that. Um, did you consider these titles?
2: Well, I know for sure we had Art of Fermentation, uh, Season One, because there's that whole uh, scene with Marcus and his fermentation station. Right. And I'm pretty sure he's referencing that book. Yeah. Uh, the other book I can't remember because now it's so many books. I've I have two Excel documents that I've created just with every book we've bought. So. <laughs> oh uh, man. I, I think it's close to 500 books.
1: So let me ask you, who owns those books and where are those books right now?
2: So right now, those books are in storage in library carts. Uh, and I mean, honestly, it's a—it's uh, all owned by the studio. So FX, So uh, they're probably Bob Iger's books, I guess. Yeah. If he wants to furnish his new mansion, after, you know, soon, after, if once the show's done. But uh, yeah, uh, I mean, it all belongs to the show in between seasons uh everything comes apart that whole restaurant came apart uh it's in it's just stacked up uh all the all the equipment is palletized just on shelves just uh waiting for season 3 waiting for season 3
1: waiting for the strike to end let's waiting talk about the strike stroke, a little right bit i think it we we can't yeah. let that pass that the writers strike and the actors strike affects the production of the show you're you're likely on pause i would imagine or some sort of pause What's, what's your take on the strike and, and how are you doing?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's not just the show. I mean, it affects so many people. I, uh, I mean, we were chatting a little before the interview. I mean, right now, I'm, we have a workforce of, I I think I, I saw something was like 170,000 workers that are not writers, not, uh, not actors that are out of work because of the writer's strike and all those people are struggling. Uh, uh, I have people hitting me up uh, several times a day because they're about to lose their health insurance Mm -hmm. because they're not working. You know, we have no money coming in. Uh, I know people are actually leaving the business because they can't afford to not to stay. Uh, They're selling off their equipment, their tools, uh, looking for other avenues of income because uh, they just can't afford to wait and it's 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 rattling it's it's sad uh yeah yeah, yeah it's a,
1: it's a tough situation and you know we hope we hope it, the the parties can come together and and get get everyone working again and get everyone insured again um let's get a little into the actual process because i want to know like are you on set when they're filming scenes and and how how does it work if you're on like i think season 1 was shot relatively quickly like under 2 months i think is what i've heard but um season two is probably more longer but how does that work like are you are you working ahead of time are you in different sections of this warehouse are you how much location work are you doing
2: so we we film in a studio in chicago it's called Cinespace. uh it's got we have several stages so this season we had two stages that we had sets built on we actually had the old restaurant right across the hall from the new restaurant Mm -hmm. so while they were building while they were filming on the old restaurant we were in process of building a new one and they would come over from time to time and shoot scenes of the actors in the process of this new restaurant uh but for all intents and purposes we were installing a real restaurant and uh and chris and i one day you know we were just staring at each other and we're like if people knew that we opened a restaurant in two months, they would, <laughs> it would be crazy because that's how long it took us to build this new restaurant. I mean, we didn't have re- actually have to follow codes and inspections, but it Pretty was still the, the way. Yeah. The way it came together was real fast. And normally for a half hour show, the studios, they, it's kind of on a schedule, you know, if you're doing a half hour show, it's usually four and a half days of filming. So with no breaks in between, so it's fast. Yeah, you know, once you start going, there's no stopping. Uh, and we did two more episodes this season, so it was a little longer, but uh, still, it it it's fast. It goes by real fast.
1: Well, that's that's probably part of the the intensity, and it it lets the yeah. actors like really you know f- dissolve into this world and and feel like they are opening a restaurant. The fact that you film that quickly, and um, right. you know. One 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 scene I love from, from episode from season two is when I think it's uh Sydney's entered entered the new restaurant space and she's talking to Carmi and like the walls drop.
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> that, that that must have been hard to film. That was a really cool scene. Yeah. Uh, it was it was cool. I mean, that that's all something we, you know, we talk about ahead of time. We prep it. Uh I mean, uh, there were times when there was a couple of guys they work on the weekend come in and set it up, but uh, film videos, show it to Chris. As long as everyone's happy, you know, we'll work with stunts. And there are scenes where Richie's actually using a saw and it's cutting through the wall. We tried to make everything as practical as possible <laughs> for them. Yeah.
1: I'm sure the noise of of a saw with the actors, it really helps them get, in the, get into the into into the the mood, into the, the vision of that director.
2: Yeah. And they were all so great about it. I mean, uh, even season one, I mean, we did that one shot uh, and it's, Everyone knows what they're doing when they show up. Chris shows up an hour early every day. He's so dedicated to it. He goes through the script. I mean, they were doing maybe eight to 10 hour days, which is usually unheard of in our industry. Those are short days, right? Short days. But everyone's happy. You know, people have a life outside of it as well. Yeah. And it's all about that work-life balance, which is sometimes hard, which is why my union almost went on strike uh what was it almost 2 years ago cuz uh they were fighting for that uh work life balance and, and getting rest
1: let's talk about that uh that one shot it's uh, season 1 episode 7 i believe and you know we got the ticket machine that's that's really going crazy that's a huge moment for the set decorator and the prop team how did you get that to work were you involved
2: in that scene oh yeah so i i guess i never answered your question earlier but... But, uh, usually I'm not on set, you know, I, uh, I am always prepping the next day. And for this specific thing, you know, uh, for this shot, uh, we came in on Monday, they did a, a actor rehearsal, came in Tuesday, did a tech rehearsal on Wednesday, we shot it three times and they were done before lunch or well, four times. And, uh, I was behind the set on an iPad working the receipt printer. (laughs) So I was the receipt printer and we were just going to town. I I mean, this is based off an actual thing that happened with Coco, but, uh, yeah, it was nuts. I mean, we hooked, we hooked everything up on a network and tried to make it as real as possible. And I'm just sitting behind the set at a little folding table with an iPad, just pressing buttons over and over again. Hitting print, hitting print, hitting print. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) and i mean you can hear it throughout the thing how crazy it is how intense and i mean the few times they did it i I mean he actually slaps that uh that receipt printer and i think it was dead by the end of the fourth oh yeah Uh, he probably knew his last take so he's like really smashing that guy up i mean yeah (laughs) and the only reason we did that fourth take uh which is the one that that made it to screen is because the actors went to chris and they were like hey we want to do one more. We think we can really kill this one, and it, it was—I'm not usually on set, but it was great to be on set that day to see everyone working together, wow. and they—they knew they were doing something really cool. So it was a true one take. So you're saying there
1: was little editing when you were on set for that. So there was a real one take, essentially. Uh, yeah, yeah.
2: Literally. There was there was no editing. Yes, it was all one take. Uh, I mean, Gary, who camera guy, is a is a beast. He. Yeah we did it and it was flawless. Uh, I mean, we had guys, I had two onset dressers, Anthony and Michael, and they were, uh, there's a scene where they had to move that deli case, uh, that's in between the front of house and the back of house. And that was on wheels and they had to wheel it back into place as the camera walks by. So it was all like a big dance, you know, there were tables moving things moving as the camera's moving around behind the camera
1: so to, to, for like a for a level of, of flow you mean when the shots just to like follow
2: the track yeah, yeah get things get things out of the way make it so it's one fluid shot well that's the and thing, that's why we, yeah. that's
1: why everyone you know when you see a, a, most kitchens on tv they look they look weird and different because they don't look intimate because you know many don't realize you have to fit camera and you have to fit uh, audio and a lot of people between, you know, in the shot or outside of the shot. Sorry. I mean, so that's like amazing that you could actually make it feel intimate.
2: Yeah. We, we, that was part of the design Marie talking with drew and coming up with the idea of how and where the camera is going to be and how much room we need to to leave for it. So that's all part of the design. I mean, it's, it's, when you're in there in person, it's a little bigger than a restaurant would normally be, but on camera, it feels so much smaller right uh it's a lot more packed, but uh it was still really tight uh once you get all that equipment in there, and even with a new restaurant, that was a big thing uh placement, placement of the islands, yep. and all the equipment I mean, we went through probably two weeks with Maddie Coco and the construction and all my vendors I was getting equipment with with getting everything so it fit because we wanted to we cheated a little but we wanted the restaurant to be the same size so making everything similar size to the original restaurant with fitting all this new equipment this new island everything that they wanted and not feeling all on top of each other wow and it, it even got to a point where we made a cardboard cutouts of the equipment before it arrived. <laughs> and we were placing it to scale and Maddie and Coco were going back and forth to the island of the equipment, placing it to how it should be in an actual restaurant under the hood.
1: Well, yeah, I think anybody in the industry sees how the brigade is set up and how the, the, the you know, chef working the past, be it Carmi or cousin, they, it feels like there's an accuracy there. Let me ask you about the the, the second season's restaurant. Uh, the last episode is the opening. How did you decide on the aesthetics of this restaurant? Um, and also just like the kitchen there, did you have uh, a mood board from with the director and with Chris about the
2: style of restaurant you wanted to build? Yeah, we went through a few different versions and it kind of, we tried to stay in the budget of what they actually had. Mm. and we tried to make it look like it was something that they actually did uh we worked with a lot of local vendors who of course helped us out and cut us deals on things so things that these people would actually do and uh so we pulled the aesthetics from all over restaurants Chris loves restaurants Matt Maddie loves restaurants uh I love and Marie loves so uh uh Coco and I sat down with plateware uh we would have zoom calls before they were in town and I would have samples of plates just out and we'd go through it uh we had the chefs from Kasama come in yeah. and we we talked about plateware uh we even we filmed that ever uh this past season and we got the front of house manager to come in and kind of consult with us for a few days on uh on making it realistic the front of house flow uh where people would stand how much you know silverware we needed and glassware this so is for the spoons that,
1: episode with richie you're talking about that episode where yeah you're, that the way that restaurant is set up right
2: yeah so I, I i i believe her name's amy was the front is front of house there and she came on the set and was helping us you know helping us with uh calling out orders uh Making sure everything was authentic to how it would really be in that kind of environment.
1: Wow, I mean it's it's remarkable, and and really I love the aesthetic of the new restaurant that you opened in the last episode of season two, and and I think there's a real growth there. And I want to close by asking you. I know you can't spoil anything with plot points, but like, what do you want to? What do you want to see on this on this show of of yours? Like, what do you want to see? See season three? Oh, season three?
2: Yeah, I just want to see chaos. I mean, I want it to be <laughs> pure chaos, which I. Th- I mean, I'm hoping it's going to be because, you know, we, this season, I, I, this season mood wise, I feel like it was a lot different from the first season. Yeah. I think a lot of the, some of the biggest complaints I got from people that were sometimes chefs were like, you know, I, I work at a restaurant full-time. I don't want to go home and watch a show about a restaurant. Uh, I mean, some people loved it, felt that, you know, they could really relate to it. I, uh, This season, I feel like was a lot more family drama, which I had people that work on my crew that, you know, would tear up when they were on set because there would be a scene that really hit close to home. And then, you know, it'd be nice to see maybe a culmination of those two worlds, uh, season three, you know, that uh, the balance between family and work and the chaos between all the characters. So that's what I'm hoping for. Man.
1: Well, Eric, I, it's a remarkable show and, and so much credit to you and your team for making the the universe feel like a universe we recognize in in, in the food world and restaurant world. And such such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining This Is Taste.
2: Yeah, it was great talking to you. And, uh, you know, before I go, I just want to ask you, uh, we have a mutual friend, Garrett, and I've owed him pizza for... Over 15 years, if you can slip him some pizza for me, that would be amazing.
1: Oh my god, Garrett! Yeah, I'll definitely shout out to Garrett. Uh, a good, a good dude in the in the in the cookbook world in the yeah, in book world. Hard. Yeah, um, I, I certainly will do that. I'll see him. I'll see him sometime. I'm sure. Maybe City Lights Diner too, buddy. Great talking to you. Great
2: talking to you too, and we'll talk again.